0: Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantel. Tiso. And today we're joined by our special guest, Satnam Verdi. Hello. And this podcast is being broadcast from uh, the Sociological Review Conference in Gateshead and Satnam gave the keynote speech yesterday. So would you like to tell us a little bit about your main points from that talk?
1: Absolutely. What I've tried to achieve in this uh, annual lecture was to highlight the historical significance of racism to the shaping of the modern world. In order to be able to fully understand that, one needs to denaturalize the significance of capitalism to originating racism, but also for reproducing it. Satnam, um, can you just tell us what denaturalizing means? Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Um, denaturalizing in the sense that there are debates which focus on racism, which kind of assume capitalism as the canvas upon which it is produced, but it, the system is actually never named. So, what one does effectively is speak about the effects of racism as a result of um, certain kinds of regimes of racialized representation, but we never really explore what we might call the roots, the originary roots of some of those racist regimes of representation and the manner in which they acquire their material force. Why do they come to matter? People can think about and group people in all sorts of ways. Why is it that race or the process of racialization comes to take on such a significance in the story of historical capitalism? And that's the question that I'm interested in, how those histories of racialization are entangled with the histories of capitalism.
2: You definitely got that point across yesterday. It was phenomenal. It was like a tour de force on racism. It was fascinating to look like the way you started with like Marx as well. It was. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I, I think Marx for me is a starting point. Mm. Um, his analysis of capital... And the idea that capitalism is a new system, it's a revolutionary mode of production. We've had forms of commercial society throughout humanity's existence, but capitalism is something else. It's not just about elite enrichment. It's about something else that Marx calls the ceaseless accumulation of capital. Mm. And it takes on a life, a force of its own, And that's what gives capitalism its kind of dynamism. But that dynamism also produces incredible turbulence. Because in order to realise surplus value, it has to combine labour with capital. And it forces, drags labour within Britain, for example, from the countryside to the towns. But more globally, if we think of Britain as a kind of originator of a global capitalism, it drags people from all over the world in order to generate and produce that capital expansion. So there's a, there's a distinctiveness to capitalist society that never existed in the past.
3: I was going to say, so if that's the case and you're looking at kind of chasing the genealogy of history of, the, of racism, did you notice the difference between how it manifests itself in, say, someone like in America versus somewhere like Britain.
1: Yeah, I think this would be the the kind of second element of my account, really, which is that you begin with the kind of, the abstract, let's say, and the need to offer a kind of holistic conceptual framework. But then also, in order to understand what work racism accomplishes in particular spaces, in particular historical moments, one has to concretize that analysis. Stuart Hall once said that there can be no general theories of racism, only historically specific racism. So there's an attentiveness to history that is necessary. Um, he, he obviously was the master of the conjunctural analysis, the conjunctural moment and how the economic, the political and the ideological come to intertwine. I'm adopting a slightly different kind of historical understanding, which is perhaps what the French historian Braudel refers to as the long durée, looking at a, a kind of broader panorama of the historical unfolding of the story of capitalism.
3: I
0: think, sorry, yeah, go on, that's what out. really strikes me about your work and having read your book Race, Class and the Racialized Outsider is that you, you know, it's like, 300 almost years of history but it's so compelling that thread because it gets left out of almost Mm. every historical sociological analysis of capitalism of how like why are we in the moment that we're in now always ignores race just always it just makes it so clear that you can't think about class or gender or the accumulation of capital without thinking of like whose labor that's built on and Absolutely. how racism is so fundamental to that project. Yeah.
1: And and, and that speaks to T's point around the differences in time and space. Yeah. You know, and the racialization of particular groups. So, for example, when I spoke yesterday, I offered the instance of the Virginia colony. Mm-hmm. Now, there the the racialization takes on a kind of explicit form which uh, of white supremacy. But Simultaneously to that, in the home, as it were, of um, capitalist modernity in the ho- in, in, within England itself, the other is signified as Irish Catholics. This is the significance, as it were, of that need to be attentive to uh, historical specificity, that there are multiple layers that need to be uncovered. If we're to truly get to grips, really, with the significance, what I call the structuring capacity of
3: racism over the long durée. I I think that's true because I think in modern debates now, people talk about race and there's no attentiveness to history. If there is, it's to kind of win kind of quippy arguments. So one of the arguments deployed in the far right, they said, well, they were white slaves. Then, so, they're making a, refer, a reference to the Ottoman Empire. So, when they used to go around to the, like the Balkans, they collect white slaves yep. from Europe. But it's not really reflecting the true different nature of different slaveries at different times around the world. You know? There
1: is nothing that can compare to the enslavement of Africans as part of this initial moment of primitive accumulation. I would argue that that is the case if you think of colonialism more broadly. And the reason for that is quite simply is the essence of that process of enslavement was to deny the African their humanity. So for example, simultaneously to the moment of colonisation in the Americas, which brought African labour to the Americas. There's also the East India Company moving into parts of India to trade. Now, what's interesting there are there there are racializing regimes of representation, but the humanity of Indians is never denied. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of coming together in the 19th century, but for two centuries, the Relations of force are such between the Indian elites and the East India Company that those regimes of racialized representation stress cultural differences. Right. There's still a hierarchical ordering, but it's stressing that everyone is less than excellent, less than excellent compared to the English. What's
2: really interesting about that, and I've done this a little little bit because my PhD is looking at how... um, mixed race families experience racism in Britain, but looking at that history of Virginia and how mixedness was police, but then it was obviously outlawed in Virginia, like you couldn't have yeah. um, a mixed race marriage or rather yeah. black men couldn't marry white women That's right. in the East India company. It was never legislated against, but it yeah. was arguably police. So that is, I I've never really, obviously I, I've spoke about those things, but making that connection yeah. of, how different they were treat how human yes. they
1: were maybe. William Dalrymple, I think it's a, a book called The White Moogles, which was published, I think, more than a decade ago, describes very movingly the manner in which those kinds of interactions took place. But it also highlights, in my mind, the entanglement of gender with race and class. And I think we have to Think of these inequalities as interlocking systems of oppression that can't be privileged over one another, but rather have to be studied again in what Marx would term the totality. In their totality.
3: But what's interesting to me is, I think, in modern terms of how the those things have been internalized. So the idea of like China had culture is a civilized place, but it's stagnated. These kind of nineteenth century notions have been internalized now, and. If you go into Instagram or anything like, that, like how young black guys refer to themselves, they refer to themselves in the same way as people did in those times as animals, as beasts, as subhuman still. But that's seen as a good thing in world.
0: Well, commas. Or it gets in sport the way black people are portrayed as kind of super superhuman, superhuman. Yeah, mm-hmm. more so, than human.
3: So whenever I obviously I, I go to the gym, I train. So all through my training, it's never due to my hard work. It's like teach your genetics. It's your genetics, <laughs> yeah. or oh, or someone would say to me, "Can you swim?" I'm like, "Yeah." yeah. <laughs>
2: We're <laughs> but seeing that this... more of that. We're seeing this <laughs> yeah. this return more overtly.
1: I I think it highlights the depth mm-hmm. of anti black racism, mm. you know, and its continuing structuring force. In that even. What might be regarded by the racializers as positive representations mm. are in fact yes. still essentializing representations that are racist in their effects you know and that's what I think is absolutely crucial. Gilroy is very good here i think on 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 this particular point that we need to de essentialize we need to think of these ideas these allegedly positive representations as part of a racist discourse
0: mm. yeah i was thinking about that in terms of um it's similar with a kind of paralympic discourse you know like disabled people are like fetishized as being this kind of like extra human yeah, yeah. It's yeah it's channel
2: four describe them where the superhumans yeah exactly. yeah, yeah it's superhuman superhumans
0: huma- super yeah.
1: You also have that with um, the group that is constructed as Asians. Mm-hmm. You have good Asians mm-hmm. and bad mm-hmm. Asians. Mm-hmm. In the current conjuncture, the bad Asians are Muslims. Yeah. yeah. And But, but there, there's a foil through which they're constructed, which is vis-a-vis the good Asians who are Indians. Mm. You know, so there are logics of racialization that are different perhaps from those which prevailed in the moment that our grandparents, let's say, came to this country in the 50s and 60s. And racism, Sivanandan used to say this, is a kind of parasitic ideology. It's a contradictory ideology and it succeeds precisely because it is this kind of um, all-encompassing, parasitic form of representation.
0: I think that's where the denaturalizing comes in because it becomes so embedded in every single aspects of thought and life. And it is a natural way of being. That's a,
3: but how would you argue against those that who say, you will take your line of the argument and say, it's, it almost seems natural. This is a natural thing that people naturally do to split up into groups. People naturally press each other yeah. and they will use history to demonstrate. So yeah. historically the weak have so strong, always prey upon the weak. Yeah. So how do you kind of deconstruct that argument? I,
1: I think the contribution is already out there and it's in play. I mean, think of, the, for example, the movements for decolonizing the curriculum. Mm. I think what this shows is a, a certain form of ignorance about African history, about uh, non-European uh, world history. Wait, sorry, you think um, the
0: decolonised movement, specifically, oh, it demonstrates ignorance about that?
1: N- no, sorry, let me clarify. I, I think what movements like decolonizing the curriculum achieve oh, right. by bringing in mm. um, non-European authors is they introduce ways of seeing the world which have largely been obscured from view within the Western academy. So, for example, one of the great books that I would recommend is uh, Walter Rodney's um, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which shows that what we might call the overdevelopment of the West was secured at the expense of the underdevelopment of the rest.
2: Yes. That there is a
1: kind of um, symbiotic relationship, and we erase that underside. Which allows those ideas then to emerge that somehow those of us of color are less than or have some catching up to do to aspire to the white norm, mm. which isn't that, and that white norm is never articulated in that form. It's just there this, in its un- unarticulated form.
3: This is what I've kind of seen. So, as I grew up and going to school, and so all you see is representations of whiteness, but it's assumed that it's normal. So in that whole narrative, like, so I like history. So when I first encounter history, you encounter the Egyptians who don't look like they're from Africa, they look like they're from Greece. <laughs> and you're like, well, so where are you in this story? The next yeah. time you only see me in this story, I'm a victim. So I'm, a, I'm a, either a slave or it's civil rights, but that's not, that's not in Britain, that's in America. So yeah. where, where am I in this story? Yeah, And it seems so when you are a kid, you internalize all these things. So. Yeah. A lot of times you're spending your time looking to America, yeah. but that doesn't really reflect my experience as a black British person.
0: Yeah. I know my local park has a playground called the Martin Luther King playground. This, this I'm like, great,
3: but. This is it. it, it this, like, <laughs> my voice is not articulated.
1: No, absolutely. And I think there are, and just in terms of anti-racism, there are histories of anti-racism within Britain itself mm-hmm. that I tried to point to in the lecture, which need a broader understanding and a, 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 you know, a broader audience, um, the contribution of people of colour to the development of what we might call freedom dreams has been absolutely central to British projects for democratisation. You can think of um, the contributions made by folk like Mary Prince Equiano, Robert Wedderburn, mm. these were people of African descent who connected because they were, in one sense, both part of Britain but also its colonial formations. They had a broader view of the world that was denied those who, as it were, had their origins within Britain itself. And it gave them what Du Bois calls a kind of second sight and it allowed them to entangle questions of class exploitation within Britain with questions of abolitionism abroad. Mm. And I think this is where I find the kind of um, what we might call the contemporary left obsession with pulling up borders quite problematic because in many ways it's migrants with their kind of transnational experiences that can actually help to stretch our democratic imaginations. And actually, when allowed to do so, in particular periods of history, they've contributed to the democratisation of, uh, greater democratisation of British society.
3: This is, I think, like, so somewhere like China, which is rapidly expanding, but they are currently, uh, I think, one of the most homogenous places in the world. And they're having problems coming to terms with the wider world. But when Britain, with all the immigrants that we have, all the migrants we have, that kind of reflectiveness has helped us become the kind of city that we are, or the country that we are in. I
0: think that could be quite a problematic thing to say, to say that China's one of the most-
3: No, but that's one of the problems- Because it's certainly
0: not monocultural.
3: I know, but 92% of them is like Han population. So having to- Is what population? The Han population, I think it is. So they- Is that like the majority? Yeah, majority. So so they're becoming, they're having problems dealing with the wider world. And especially when you ask them how they feel about black people, the first thing they say is scared, scared. (laughs) Because their, their imitation is something they see in Hollywood movies. Right. So they have a fear, not because the government controls what they see. So they don't really see that many black people come to China. And when they do come, they're kind of marginalized in this little kind of town.
1: I think what you point to is something which will become increasingly important, I think, over the long run, as we see the kind of epicenter of global capitalism shifting east. Mm-hmm. It's that Asian civilizations like China, India and so on, do have their own regimes of representation. And those can sometimes be racialized. I mean, for example, you know, there was a sense in which the Chinese understood Europeans as, I think they referred to them as the ghost people. You know, so there are kind of ways in which non-Chinese populations could potentially be racialized. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're dealing with half a millennia of white supremacy. And that clearly has had some impact on the subalterns, including those that were colonized. Well, I mean, mean, India's having extraordinary... Absolutely. I've
0: been talking about this a lot because I've been reading Aaron Dusty Roy's racist book. Of course. And, you know, the racisms, in both her novels, actually, the racisms that you see there that are part of white supremacy are deeply disturbing. Yeah,
1: I I think um, this is something we have to be increasingly attentive to is that what we might call new uh, or emergent racisms reflecting the new capitalist order Mm. that we're seeing um, emerge in this moment the BJP, the ruling party in India at the moment, have a conception of Indianness which excludes the population marked as Muslim mm. because they regard that population as incompatible with the values that they believe signify what it is to be Indian. Could we, um,
2: yeah, yeah is
1: that a form of racism? I think you know mm. this is something we have to come to terms with but, and. Um, think further about.
3: I was going to ask you, do you think that's one of the kind of um, products of Western imperialism? Like we gave them the nation state and the Enlightenment and this is all kind of tied up in it. So like the Japanese form of nationalism and stuff like based on our forms of nationalism, do you think it has an effect on them or?
1: I think in a in a kind of um, mediated way, in a kind of overdetermined sense, yes, I think there is that element to it. But I think we also have to be attentive to the fact that There is a role that the Indian elites in this case, for example, are playing themselves in the reproduction Mm. of these kinds of categorizations that it perhaps fits with um, their way of uh, securing their position in the world in the current conjuncture. And it is disturbing on a global scale to see that we are seeing a kind of turn away from democratization Mm. to increasingly authoritarian rule, not just in Europe, but around the world. And for those who are subalterns, racialized, classed, and gendered subalterns, democracy is our key mechanism to secure social justice. Yeah. It's very precious.
2: On that, Satnam, could you tell us a little bit more? I mean, you mentioned it briefly just now, and it was quite a big part of your keynote yesterday. I liked it that you brought it up, but about socialism and socialism's contribution to racism and sort of relating that now to the current political predicament we're in in the UK, so relating to Brexit. I think it's one of the reasons why I've struggled to get on board 100%. With Corbyn's Labour, it's because I'm always sort of side eyeing a bit like, mm, "Are you anti-racist?" I mean, well, know, this, think- this is off the record slightly. I think that Corbyn <laughs> himself, I think Corbyn himself, I I believe he is an anti-racist yeah. man. I think, the, well, I think, I would agree. I, with I, you. I think he is, yeah. but the party itself and in his supporters m- and his supporters in this moment. What does that mean for yeah. race and racism in the UK?
1: Maybe if I could take a step back yeah. and think about the Labour Party in its kind of originary moment. Um, it's a progressive movement. It's a movement of the left. Mm. And it's designed to secure economic and social justice for the vast majority of the working class that remained as inactive citizens of the British state. The contradiction arrives arises because that idea of democratisation and social justice is located on the terrain of the nation. And what that means is that it has the potential to become racialized, Mm. because race and nation, when it comes to thinking about Britain, run hand in hand because of empire and have done so traditionally. So as a result of that, what happens is that whoever the the most recent migrant group is tends almost to serve as a kind of foil for the rest to be included within the nation, more often than not, around the justification that they're racially British, unlike the Jews Mm -hmm. in the early 20th century or the Asians and the Caribbeans in the second half of the 20th century. So there's a certain elasticity to national projects that allow them to be stretched. And this is the kind of Janus-like nature of nationalism that I think Tom Nairn refers to, that on the one hand they can be democratising, but at the same time they're accompanied by all sorts of exclusions. And for me, racism has been a central dimension to socialist nationalist projects. Now, there was always a minority strand within Britain. You can trace it back to um, the, what was called the Socialist League of William Morris, Eleanor Marx, Karl Marx's daughter, but in herself a wonderful socialist activist who used to go to meetings in the 19th century, in the late 19th century in the East End of London and begin her speeches to the Dockers by saying, I come to you as a Jewess. So <laughs> linking, in, deliberately, willfully wow. linking questions of race and class in order to stretch those conceptions, as it were, Mm. that that were the majority ones that denied Jews the possibility of being active agents. And there was some success to those movements, and we have to remember, I think, that there's always been a counter-tradition within Britain of a certain kind of what we might call socialist internationalism, and central to that socialist internationalism have been what I've termed racialized outsiders. So at various points, they have been Jews, they've been Irish Catholics, they've been Asians and they've been Caribbeans. Mm. They've all helped to stretch conceptions of class and offered a different way of imagining democratic
3: politics in Britain, which I think actually could
1: serve us well today.
3: This is what I think is lacking. I think from the period like the 70s and 80s, you can definitely feel that kind of sense of activism. But... In 2018, as a black boy, I don't feel supported by the left. If you said to me, who supports me? I, none of them. Yeah. And that leads to a kind of sense of disengagement. Well, I'm already disengaged. And well, so this my- is
0: what we were saying on the early career researchers day, how Chantel was on a panel that talked about issues of racism in the academy and as an early career researcher. And then there was a talk about unions and stuff. And this guy... Gave this long talk about the histories of the union movement. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah I yeah. kind of switched off. But <laughs> no one talks about unions in the racism panel, yeah. and no one talks about race yeah. in the union stuff. I did think Wait. that. I thought, guys, oh, yeah. yeah,
2: I just—it was incredible. But I just wish. They'd spoken about anti-racism, because yeah. how
0: can we talk about? I mean, they yeah. did union. mention international students, which obviously is a hugely racialized of course. Yeah. Uh, of course. Uh, source of income for universities. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it was very noticeable that as Chantal and I were talking about it afterwards. And if you're experiencing racism, I mean, the same kind of sexism, but I don't think the union would be the first place you go to.
1: And that that highlights, I think, what I referred to as the technical and political decomposition of class, that in many ways, that moment of stretching class in the 70s and 80s, triggered by people of Caribbean and Asian descent stretching those conceptions of class, that was destroyed under Thatcherism. Mm. Neoliberalism can only really be understood as a kind of counter-revolution, you know, as a kind of counter-revolution that extinguished the dreams of a better society imagined by working people of all colours and all genders, where there was a brief, and it was uneven, it was contradictory, and it didn't always align, but there was definitely a brief moment of coming together of different struggles around race, gender, and class, mm. that they became more entangled you know, you can see that most obviously in relation to Grunwick.
0: Mm. Could you just explain what that is?
1: Yeah. Okay. The, the Grunwick strike um, ran for two years and it largely involved um, groups of Asian and Caribbean women who are written out of the story, actually, uh, who went on strike against appalling working conditions. This was in London. Went on strike against appalling working conditions alongside facing sexism and and racist harassment as well and they held out for two years and in that two-year strike it was a formative strike and in many ways it marked the kind of beginning of the end of that moment of solidarity but that moment of solidarity peaked in the summer of 1977 uh, when the trade union movement actively mobilized uh, a wide range of um, different groups of workers from all over the country to come down to this small little side street in northwest London where this film processing plant was located in an act of solidarity. And that happened week after week in that summer of 77. Mm. So you had miners from Lanarkshire, Mm. one of the whitest places in Britain, coming down because there was a sense of class, a conception of class, which recognised that class came in many colours. That's that that vision has been destroyed. That, that's
3: lost. Yeah. So growing up in the East End, that was what I was taught we all working class, We're all working class. We all vote Labour, we all do the same thing, all we, it together. But as I've got older, that's become less and less and it's all about a sense of like the kind of neoliberal dream now. It's you chase money, you chase the aspiration. You don't give you don't care about your mates. You just want to make it you wanna get out of that slum for yourself. And then when you do get out of it, you leave everyone behind.
2: We've got to finish there. But before we finish that, what is there to be positive about with anti-racism movements today?
1: I think it's incredibly important in this difficult moment, and it is a difficult moment, to also look at what Raymond Williams referred to as the resources of hope. And for me, most obviously, I see those resources of hope in some of the urban centres of Britain, Um, London would be an obvious centre. But those places where race goes unremarked, where we all rub along with each other, a certain kind of multicultural conviviality that many others in this conference have alluded to, I think that what you see in that conviviality are two things. One, that they are a historical outgrowth of those movements of our parents and grandparents who helped craft spaces within which we could flourish. Mm. Um, So I think there's a debt, as it were, that kind of needs to be recognised, as it were, to the migrant generation in particular, I think, that they are really responsible for crafting those spaces that we now see today, for creating the space, as it were. Mm. But that secondly... They represent today, in many ways, the seeds of an alternative way of doing politics. Mm. That still has to be realised as a, I think, as an organised force.
2: Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Satnam. Thank You've you. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel, Saskia Tiso and Satnam Birdie. We'll be back every few weeks. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thank you.